This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, April 1st, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Policymakers working to address the opioid epidemic may be well behind the curve in understanding the problem. According to Daniel Ciccarone, a professor of family and community medicine at the University of California San Francisco Medical Center, much of the best data is itself outdated. He says there is now a growing appreciation that policing alone is not going to make things much better. What are some of the underappreciated aspects of the the opioid crisis as you understand it? So the first one is that um, people are lumping it all together. It's a singular, singular tidal wave, you know, monolithic uh, crisis. Uh, I break it up into three. Other people are breaking it up into three. I'm calling it a triple wave epidemic. And the reason why I'm doing that is not only does it look like that when you map out the uh, deaths due to opioid pills and then heroin and then fentanyl separately, it looks like a wave phenomenon. Um, But if you understand the supply and demand drivers for each wave, you actually get pictures that look somewhat different. The picture for the opioid pill overdose wave looks different than the subsequent heroin wave. And the fentanyl wave, which is third, looks very different uh, than the two waves that came before that. So in terms of policy, in terms of treatment, in terms of approaches, we need to understand the drivers, both supply-side drivers and demand-side drivers of this triple-wave epidemic. Uh, that's underappreciated. I think what's also underappreciated is exactly what is fentanyl um, and wh- where did this new drug come from? Um, why is it in the scene right now? Uh, do people like it? Do people not like it? Um, a lot of my research dives down to the street level to talk to the average heroin user to ask them about what happened to your heroin supply? What do you like about heroin five years ago? What do you like about heroin now? What do you not like? To get into the nuances of perception and feeling about the street drug, because with that nuanced understanding, we can also intervene better. If we just lump them all together, if we, if we lump all the drugs together, if we assume that fentanyl is a desired drug, it is not. If we assume that the fentanyl epidemic was a demand-led phenomenon. It is not. It's a supply-led phenomenon. We come up with very different policy approaches. Um, and so that's why I do both work at the 10,000-foot level, epidemiological work, big numbers, large scale, and also do work at the street level is to try to understand the nuanced perspective of this triple-wave epidemic. At the street level, how has the average opiate, opioid user changed in the last five years? So uh, the first thing we notice is that the country is divided. So uh, on the West Coast, heroin has not changed. Uh, The average opioid user, the average heroin user uh, is doing the same things they were doing five years ago. On the East Coast, everything has changed. Fentanyl has come in as an adulterant. It's come in as a contaminant, a poison, and people are learning to deal with it. Everyone knows somebody who has died in the last month or three. Uh, the devastation is uh, rampant. Uh, fentanyl comes in for many as an unwanted drug, whereas heroin was a light drug. It's warm, it's fuzzy, it's comforting. Fentanyl is bright, uh, it's brash, it's irritating to a lot of people. Yes, the high is stronger, and some people like that, but a lot of people uh, lament it. A lot of people think it's too strong, think it's too harsh, and they're watching their colleagues and friends die. Um, and so it's, it's, it's seen by many as a poison, as an unfortunate event. Um, also, the supply is changing really rapidly. 
Um, that's the advantage of, of being on the ground for the past four years is not I'm not waiting for toxicological reports. I'm watching things in real time. So I can tell you this. The heroin as it, as it is, both chemically and by appearance, in Baltimore is different than what you see in West Virginia. It's different than what you see in Maine. It's different than what you see in Chicago, right? That diversity is mind-blowing to me as a researcher who's been in this field for 20 years. And the products are changing on a weekly or monthly basis, which is profoundly disturbing to the users because they don't want their drug to be changing. They don't want to go from a white powder to a gray powder. They don't want the solution to go from brown to yellow to pink, right? That is unsettling. Um, a, a weak analogy, I might say, is like if you walked into Starbucks and the, and the, and the number one uh, type of caffeinated beverage, the, the bean you want, the style of latte you want, the type of milk you want, all of a sudden wasn't available, right? It's not as big a deal as if you're a heroin user and things are changing, but still, you would not be happy with that change. Caffeine users are fussy. Heroin users are fussy. They don't want the drug to change. And what we're seeing in American streets right now is a rapid weekly, monthly, few monthly um, variation in the street product called heroin. Fentanyl comes in 60 different flavors. Each one of these flavors has different potencies. They're analogs. And the changes in potency, the vicissitudes up and down in, in stronger, weaker, midland, that's what's driving overdose right now. Uh, not just the fact that fentanyl is a strong, uh, stronger than heroin drug. It's the fentanyl plus all of its cousins in different mixtures, different quantities, different potencies that's causing the overdose phenomena. I throw that out as a hypothesis. I'm an ethnographic researcher. That's my hypothesis. Now it needs uh, epidemiological uh, uh, evidence to support it. How far behind are policymakers in trying to deal with this? If if I understand you correctly, and if I understand how how political machinations work, my assumption would be that they're trying to fight the first wave, uh, that as you describe it. That is spot on. That is my biggest concern right now. Is that policy is four to eight years behind. We're still addressing the opioid pill crisis, the prescription crisis, um, and we're not adequately addressing the fentanyl and particularly not adequately addressing the fentanyl crisis that's happening right now. We need very different policies for an undulating, highly potent uh, uh, drug environment right now. Uh, we're not, we don't need to just address prescribing and, and exuberant prescribing practices uh, of physicians. We need to understand fentanyl is a poison because it's a poison. We could do better surveillance on it. We, we have to stop waiting for the bodies to pile up and the toxicological reports, which are telling us what's happening in people who have died. I want to know what's happening in people who are living. And also these reports take a year, two years sometimes. I don't want to know what's happening in 2017, in 2019. I need to know what's happening last week. And drug surveillance, I can understand what's happening last week. I can, if, if, if we obtain drug, analyze it, produce reports, I can tell first, first responders, whether they're ER docs, harm reduction folks, or the users themselves, what has changed in their drug supply. We could do fentanyl test strips. We could do needle exchanges, could do drug checking like they do in Europe and in Canada now. Uh, these are the kinds of things that we need to roll out now for the fentanyl crisis. And by the way, even the policies that are addressing the opioid pill first wave of the triple wave, all right, are grossly inadequate. They're blaming doctors 
and big pharma for causing this, those are what I call an intermediate variable. We need to actually go back to the root causes, right? Doctors didn't prescribe in a vacuum. They responded to patients' needs. What brought the patients to the doctors in the first place? What is it about chronic pain? What is it about disability? What is it about untreated mental illness? About, uh, and if we get even more sociological, about community fragmentation, social isolation, all of which are rising in America right now that led to excessive prescribing practices for opiates. If we just cut off the prescriptions, what you see then is paradoxical problems. Spill over to heroin, the spill over to fentanyl. And guess what? If heroin and fentanyl magically go away tomorrow, there's a fourth wave coming right behind it. Stimulants. Cocaine and methamphetamine deaths are rising. And that's because we're only focused on reforming prescribing practices. When policymakers are looking at these problems, um, who are they hearing from and who should they be hearing from? They're hearing a lot from the CDC. The CDC is very good at a numbers-based and epidemiological-based approach to this. Their data is constantly dated. They're constantly looking in the rearview mirror, okay? They need to be looking at people who are looking in the front-view mirror, right, or, or looking in the, through, the, through the windshield, right? What is coming up, right? And to do that, you have to be on the ground. You should be talking to clinicians, treatment providers, and ethnographers, right? This is an out-of-control epidemic, right? Yes, prescribing is coming down, and guess what? Prescribing overdose, prescription overdoses are coming down. Heroin going up, fentanyl skyrocketing still. Um, and because we don't have the basics of understanding uh, of what's going on in the fentanyl phenomena, and we need, we need to get serious about that. And we, so we can't take a complete numbers-based approach. We need to treat it like a, like, a, like a rolling epidemic. Three waves, and now we've got a fourth wave coming. Um, and for that, we need real-time data on the ground, direct observation, um, and courageous out-of-the-box you know, um, solutions. What might that look like if, if a lot of the data that policymakers are relying on uh, is dated if, uh, you know, we're constantly looking in the rearview mirror, if you expect there to be a fourth wave of uh, opioid uh, dependence or addiction, depending on, on how you look at it, um, what, what should we be looking for in the future? Well, I think the one benefit of a crisis, if there is a silver lining here, is that it will force us, like it or not, to be more creative and more adventurous, uh, more courageous in our policy approaches. We need to reform how we look at drug consumption in general. Prohibitionist models and um, head-in-the-sand approaches are not going to work anymore. They have not worked. They've only made the problem worse. Uh, we need to accept the fact that drug use is a common part of the human experience. And the answer then is harm reduction and rational approaches to drug consumption. Some people don't need help. The people who do need help should access it. There should be safer and cleaner and more regulated ways to get drugs, maybe not full legalization, but tax and regulate approaches that allow uh, drug use to be understood in mild forms, medium forms, and harsh forms, and tax and regulate that appropriately. Um, and ultimately, we need to allow harm reduction to do its job, to keep people alive, to have them be disease-free and, and not die of overdose, not die of HIV. Um, and we need to expand treatment. 
because we seem to be in this, uh, because of the prohibitionist model, we're embarrassed by the problem. And therefore, we're embarrassed by treatment, and therefore, we underfund it. If we accept this like a normal condition as part of the human experience, like diabetes, like growing older and getting hypertension, um, like cancer, which we don't fully understand, but it happens, happens a lot, right? And we just have rational approaches to diagnosis, treatment, and also prevention. Same thing needs to happen in the drug world, rational approaches to prevention and treatment. There are states, uh, and, and one of your fellow panelists at some point today discussed very in, in detailed terms how uh, cannabis is being offered as a at least an initial uh, something worthy of study as a potential uh, to alleviate uh, some of the problems associated with opioids in states. And you mentioned the prohibitionist model. There are many states that have severe uh, problems with uh, overdoses, and and yet they are extremely resistant to uh, any move in the direction of loosening restrictions on cannabis. Yeah, well, the data is, is growing uh, that cannabis can be uh, a, a useful adjunct for people who are in chronic pain. It can be useful on a population uh, level in terms of reducing overdose, so about a 25% reduction uh, in the states that have liberalized cannabis. Um, uh, I suggest more research. Well, what I appreciate, about, uh, I, have, I have sort of two minds about it. One is that uh, we have this data showing benefit both at the individual level and the population level. We will also have some downside if you expand a drug and, and liberalize it. In the short term, you're going to see increased use. And with the increased use, you're going to see some uptick in problematic use and medical consequences from that problematic use. So um, if we think of it as a helpful thing, that's great. We need to be prepared for some side effects of liberalizing marijuana. Uh, uh, again, I recommend a tax and regulate approach, which would say um, um, low potency um, uh, 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 leaf, bud, and, and edibles, good. But as you move up the potency scale, you need to raise the tax uh, schema on that to reduce um, exuberant use of high-potency cannabis. So that's a tax and regulate approach. Uh, it is a liberalization. It can be even considered a legalization approach, um, but it's not an um, uh, unregulated one, uh, just like alcohol. We, we differentially treat alcohol uh, based on potency. Um, the most potent forms of alcohol are more expensive. Some would argue that that the differential is not extreme enough. They should be even more. Uh, uh, I know some countries have a have a more bigger differential in 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 how they tax and regulate uh, alcohol potency. Um, but that across countries and across um, uh, um, many generations seems to be the best approach uh, to drug policy. The other one that we need to seriously consider is the Portuguese model. Uh, the Portuguese model has been misinterpreted as a drug uh, liberal legalization schema. It's actually not. It's a decrim, uh, meaning that possession is not uh, uh, charged. And it's a soft paternalistic approach to the drug problem. That is, if, if you are a person who moving beyond simple use, is developing a use disorder, whether defined by a doctor, maybe defined by uh, a problem with the criminal justice system, maybe defined by a social problem, by your partner or your family, 
right? You're put into a model that says, we're going to take care of you and we're going to help you um, with getting through this. Maybe the root cause is not the drug use. Maybe it's the lack of purpose in life, the lack of a job. They help people get jobs, right? Maybe it's untreated mental illness. They get people access to proper medical care, right? And so um, that kind of soft paternalism model would fit well in America, I think. It's sort of similar to our drug courts, like a, a well, high-functioning drug court across the entire, you know, that, that, that reached across America. Um, that's something that we should seriously consider, and not just have a, this prejudicial notion that, oh, they've just legalized drugs. They have not done that. Decrim plus caring, uh, I think, is, is, would be a better approach to the drug problem in America. Policymakers are getting advice from lots of different groups. Uh, you know, to the extent that they're getting advice from police, how much of that advice is mistaken or self-interested? We, we've known across generations now that, uh, and, and, and good studies on this showing that prohibition, both on the international scale, has not worked. Drugs have come in cheaper and purer um, um, uh, over time. And also on a local scale, it actually adds to the problem, stigmatizes the population, stigmatizes the individual. You only get dysfunction either at the individual level or at the community level because of that. And now we're seeing criminal justice leaders, at least, hearing that. Across the spectrum, the political spectrum, I'm hearing criminal justice leaders saying we're not going to police our way out of this, that we are going to um, treat people as patients and not as criminals, that we're going to partner with public health, public safety plus public health partnership. I'm hearing this at the federal level and at the high state levels in many places. Um, I only wish that it moves from rhetoric now to actual policy, to actual implementation. We do see small uh, examples of this locally where it's worked quite well, right, where communities have turned around their drug problem because they're treating people as patients and, and partnering with public health and medical providers. And harm reduction, for that matter, too. Harm reduction is becoming the, the lingua franca in all of this. Like, everyone can understand that it's not about um, letting the drug problem go wherever it wants. It's about reducing the harms of drugs, whether it's, whether it's at the street, whether it's in the courtroom, whether it's in the jail, whether it's a treatment program. We're all speaking the same language. We're trying to keep folks alive and help them move toward a better place in life. Daniel Chikorone was the principal investigator of the Heroin and Transition Study for the National Institutes of Health and National Institute on Drug Abuse. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Harm Reduction Conference last month. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.